So he said that we're, we have taken an obligation to not just not be wicked, but also to be a tzaddik. And we said that the tzaddik, even though we're not able to really achieve that, we still have to try. And the first thing that we learned is setting aside time to cultivate an abhorrence of evil, as the text says. Okay. And we spoke about how the abhorrence of evil of the non-tzaddik that he's attempting to cultivate is only an imitation of the abhorrence of evil of the tzaddik. Because the tzaddik, what does the tzaddik abhor about the evil, about klipa, about the, that which is unholy? Anyone remember? It's inherently not godly. It's inherently not godly. What is the non-sadic kind of abhorrent about the ungodliness? Uh, that keeps him from connecting to no. jokes. Just, is it recording? Ready? Oh, okay. We, we, uh, we, we interrupt the recording. No, does anyone remember how, you, how the non-sadic is supposed to attempt to cultivate a hatred of evil? Yes, physicality being disgusting for physical reasons, right? In other words, if you develop a negative association with the physicality itself, then it kind of tempers your positive feelings towards klipa, towards the unholiness. But that is a dangerous thing to do in excessive amounts. Why? Because you you might end up developing some very unhealthy attitudes towards things that you need to actually do, such as eat. So one should do this in a judicious manner. Okay, and we said that if you, if you do that repeatedly, right, you eventually develop a kind of a habit, a kind of a association of the mind that you feel detached and repulsed by things. Um, even though, again, the detachment and repulsion is not because they're unholy, but because they're just disgusting. After all, what does food turn into? Waste. That's right. And your body, which derives nourishment from that food? And so all you're doing is staving off the fact that you're turning into maggot food. Lovely. How pleasant. It, it's not supposed to be. Okay. Um, so that was an uplifting thing that we learned. Yeah? Okay. Well, we learned you're not supposed to do that. No, we were just supposed to do that. Just in the right measure. In, in like an intentional way, otherwise you might just Yes, in an intentional way discussed by everything and that's not helpful. Right. Because you do need to be able to serve God and you can't do that if you're... Dead. <laughs> I was going to say sick, but dad definitely would do that. Yeah. Okay. Fine. Now what we're going to do is focus on the other side because the tzaddik is not just someone who is disgusted by evil, but they also delight in the presence of God, right? Now, why is the tzaddik able to delight in the presence of God? Does anyone remember that? The divine bliss, analogous to being in Gan Eden, right? Um, is that something that we are bringing ourselves to experiencing? No. So the question is, how do we then fulfill as best as we can the idea of trying to be a tzaddik? How do we get to some notion of um, delighting in the presence of God if we're not actually experiencing the bliss of being in God's presence? That is what we're going to be dealing with today. Um, good? How do we what? How do we what? The tzaddik experiences a joy and bliss, and a joy in, in Hashem's presence because they experience a divine bliss, right? The Ava Batanugim. Is the non tzaddik going to experience that? So, does the non tzaddik still have to try to be a tzaddik? So, what are we supposed to do that, in, 
is the fulfillment of our obligation to be a tzaddik, even if we're not actually experiencing what the tzaddik experiences. In other words, how do we mimic the tzaddik, even though we're not actually becoming a tzaddik? Could we um, make a distinction between... So are you saying that a tzaddik hates evil, but also experiences a like, joy that comes from divine bliss? Well, it's actually the other way around. Because they experience the joy that comes from having this divine bliss, right. that's what makes them hate evil. Right, but the, the divine bliss is a gift. Correct. So we can't, well, it's not like we should... No. Yes, a gift. Ish, right. Okay, but if it's if it's a gift that they're deserving of, mm-hmm. we can't like you can't like strive to act as if you already had a gift. But you could strive to do the things that come from the gift. Well, why don't we see what he says? But that, the issue is what are we supposed to what are we supposed to actually do? Right. Are we supposed to be approximating the joy or approximating the divine bliss? Ah, that is a very good question, right? That is a very, very good question. Let's read the text and see what it says. Okay. So we are on page 62, which is not the last page of the chapter. We're going back a little bit. I kind of, I did the, all the negative stuff and now we're doing the positive stuff. Um, I have to finish this week. I'm hoping we can finish tomorrow so we can have questions and answers on Wednesday. But I reserve the right to usurp questions and answers to finish the chapter if I need to. <laughs> I want to use the word your soup, I like it. Okay. Um, Likewise. Okay. Uh, no, no, that's not where we are. Conversely, we're, we're near the, the right-hand column. It's like about six lines from the bottom where it says conversely. What? Yeah. Let him delight and rejoice in God by reflection on the greatness of the Ein Sof. That just means infinite, blessed is he. To the best of his capacity. He may well realize that he cannot attain uh, to this degree with a full measure of truth except in illusion. Nevertheless, he should do his part in effort to uphold the oath, admission, be righteous, and God will do as he sees fit. Okay. So what are you supposed to do? Imagine. You're supposed to imagine. Hmm. It doesn't say that, actually. What is it? I ask you, what are you supposed to do? To reflect on the greatness of That's not what it says. Okay. <laughs> delight and rejoice. Delight and rejoice. That's what you're supposed to do. Delight and rejoice. How are you supposed to delight and rejoice? By reflection. By reflection. Okay. Then there's some caveats afterwards. The idea is you reflect on the infinite greatness of God, and that is supposed to bring you to delighting in God. So, in what way is that like the tzaddik, and what way is that not like the tzaddik? There's delight and rejoicing, just like the tzaddik, yeah. right? Because remember, the key characteristic of the bani is not delighting and rejoicing, right? It's the desire and yearning and striving, right? So this is very different. It's delighting and rejoicing. Totally different experience. It's a tzaddik-like experience. To delight, to take joy. Okay. In what way is it not like the tzaddik? It doesn't make him fully experience God. Delighting and rejoicing without ever experiencing what it is that he's delighting and rejoicing in. That's right. The person right, the person is not actually experiencing the presence of God. So then what's causing the delight and the joy? Um, what? Thinking about it. Thinking about it. It's imagination, basically. No, not his imagination. 
Not his imagination. This is going to be very good. It's not his imagination. So let us illustrate the following. Person one. Okay, we're going to have a few different. Person one um, is very, very, very wealthy. Okay. And they go to the bank. And they take a large amount of cash that's theirs. Right? I once was in the bank and I saw this. This was very, very interesting. It wasn't like, you know, like movie size. Amount, but I saw a person who went to the bank and they withdrew money. Now, I've withdrawn money from the bank. When I withdraw money from the bank, you know, you get a few bills, right? They withdrew, um, you know, what are they called? Like, those packed, when, they, when the bills were wrapped. This was in Israel, so 200 shekel bills. Not one package of them, not two packages of them. Ten. Enough to fill a small satchel. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking like, that's, like a, that's money. That's like serious amount of money, right? <laughs> okay. Now, if you were withdrawing that money, it was your money. You would probably feel something. I mean, depending on why you were withdrawing the money, but it was just like, take decontextualize the experience. If you were just drawing the money to pay off debts, you were going to see it again. Right but if you're just like, this is my money, like that would definitely elicit a bunch of positive feelings. Just the actual, all this satchel full of bills belongs to me. Right? Did you ask him like, hey, what's that for? No, I did not think that would be remotely appropriate. <laughs> what? I, I, it, I, later on, later, it is completely parenthetically, Israel has a law which limits, which limits transactions in cash. You are not allowed to do transactions in cash above a certain limit. No, period. No, I don't remember, I don't remember what it is. I think it's for, for, for like, for, for regular financial transactions, you're not allowed to do anything that's more than 5,000 shekels in cash. I think if it's personal gifts, it's up to like 50,000 shekels in cash. Like basically to cut out the whole black market thing. Wow. Like you have a problem. If you, go to, if you go to the bank and just deposit a lot of cash, they have to like, where is this money from? You can't just like have lots of cash. But this was before that law was passed. So probably the person was in some kind of illegal endeavor, one would imagine. Anyway, um, let's imagine now conversely that you... Um, are told by a reliable person that you have received a large amount of money deposited into your bank account. How would by you feel? Person. By a reliable person, right? So there's no issue, right? You have been told by a reliable person that you have that same amount of money has been deposited into your bank account. Would you feel positive feelings? You would, right? But they would be qualitatively very different than the kind of feeling you have when you're like in front of you, like, this is my money. It's a different kind of positive feeling. Yes? Okay. Now, let's imagine what happens when you buy a lottery ticket. You know why, you know why people buy lottery tickets? Because from the time you buy the lottery ticket until the drawing, that gives you a certain legitimacy to your fantasizing about being very wealthy. <laughs> and that's a very pleasurable experience. And so you're fantasizing, once I win this money, how much money I'll have and what I'll be able to do. And because there's a certain kind of creepiness to it, right? It's like imagining what you would have, do if you were infinitely wealthy is actually not so fulfilling because it's just like you realize, like, I could just imagine more money. 
But what if you like, no, you're imagining specifically, right now it's 44 million shekels. I know because I walked past it, so I say, ah, 44 million shekels. You're gonna imagine like, if I had 44 million shekels, not 50 million, 44 million, what could I do? And you start daydreaming. That also feels very good, right? So you have, I have it in front of me and I can experience it. I don't have it in front of me, but I have knowledge of it. And then I have the imagination that I'm imagining it. Okay. Those are three different things. They all feel very positive, yes? Okay. okay so what you're saying is it's not imagination because it is like something you have a knowledge of. Oh. You're aware that it exists, but you just haven't experienced it. Right. So the tzaddik would be like the person who has, exp- who has the money in front of them. Back, by the way, this analogy is actually better before we use paper currency. Because before we use paper currency, what did we have? Coins. Coins, right? And so like, imagine like, back when a person like, has the actual like, sack of gold coins in front of them. Right? Versus just that they know that there is a sack of gold coins somewhere that belongs to them. It's not the same thing. They're both positive experiences. They're both a joy. There's both a, there's both a delight, but it's a very different kind. It's qualitatively different. It's not just more and less. Because one is stemming from what you experience, the other one is stemming from what you have knowledge of. But now, what would you say about the positive experience you have from imagining, from fantasizing that you're wealthy when you're really not? It's kind of an ache there. It's kind of a what? A lack. You feel an absence. Yeah, it's not, it's not a genuine joy, mm-hmm. right? Okay, so am I supposed to imagine the greatness of Hashem? Or I'm supposed to reflect on the greatness of Hashem so I have knowledge of his greatness. Which one is, is the Alter Rebbe um, saying that the non-Sadiq should do to do his best to serve Hashem in a Tzadik-like way? To imagine the greatness of Hashem or to possess knowledge of the greatness of Hashem? Knowledge. knowledge. Now, if you possess that knowledge and reflect upon that knowledge, it's supposed to bring you joy. Is it the same joy that the Tzadik has? Okay, so are there any questions on, on, on that breakdown, the difference between the joy that comes from the actual direct experience versus the joy that comes from knowledge versus the positive rush you get from fantasizing, which isn't really grounded in reality? Yeah, I think it's because I'm slower today, so if it is that, you don't have to repeat it. Can you just say again the tzaddik? Tzaddik would be the person who has the cash in front of them. The Bainini who's trying to do the work of being like a Tzaddik is like the person who has knowledge of the money. But the Nimshah. It is their money, money, right? So they have, right. So the Tzaddik is someone who's experiencing the bliss of being in Hashem's presence like on Eden, therefore they delight in Hashem. The Bainini is the person who aside from trying to be a Baini, you know, not being a Rasha, right, make his connection with Hashem his priority, is also supposed to try to reflect on the greatness of Hashem to the point his knowledge of how great Hashem is brings him to a state of joy. Okay? And then there's the person who's just, you know, imagining and, and deluding themselves in how great Hashem is and, 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 and living in fantasy land. I, I don't get quite the, diff- like the difference between not having the money in front of you like, you mm-hmm. know it's there, you're just mm-hmm. thinking about it mm-hmm. and having the money in front of you. I get that in the mushal, but in the nimshal, how it I, I'm going to explain. I'm going to explain. Oh, okay. explain. Okay. So, does the tzaddik have to do anything to rejoice in Hashem? No. No. Well, prior to becoming a tzaddik. 
Right, but there's, right, he doesn't have to do anything to rejoice in Hashem. What, what happens is that he's experiencing this bliss. That bliss elicits in him joy. Now, did he do something to make himself worthy of that gift? Sure. Does he do things to hold on to, to make sure he doesn't lose that revelation? Sure. But what's happening is that he's reacting to what he is being shown, what he is, being, what he is experiencing. He's not reacting to something he's doing with his own mind. So in other words, he can't really turn it on or off. Okay? There was a, a famous chassid, and I, uh, his name was Rabbi Kusiel Lepler. Rabbi Kusiel Lepler, who's from the town of Lepley, that's why he's called Lepler. Okay. So Rabbi Kusiel Lepler traveled to the Alter Rebbe, and he had Yechid, his private on to the Alter Rebbe, and in his private audience, he asked the Alter Rebbe to tear out his left side. The left side being the place where the animal soul resides. So basically, he was asking the Alter Rebbe to make him a tzaddik. And the Alter Rebbe responded, No. The Alter Rebbe's response was to put his hands like this. And then he said in his sing-song voice, the Alter Rebbe was spoken in a sing-song voice. But after, I'm not going to imitate it, because my, my singing is not great, but everything the Alter Rebbe said had kind of a melody to it. He said, parenthetically, the Alter Rebbe's Yechidus room, had these two big candles on either side, and he had a Zohar in front on the table. So it's kind of an intimidating thing to go into. Just... Anyways, the Alter Rebbe said, um, you enliven everything. You enliven everyone, meaning Hashem. And um, voila, his left side was removed. And his animal soul was vanquished, and he became a tzaddik. And Yikusa Lepler. So sometimes Yikusa Lepler would... Now, Yikusa Lepler was not the most stable individual. Um, so Yikusa Lepler, um, he, he would sometimes have these experiences of the divine bliss. So he'd be walking down the street... And he would say the chassid. He referred to this divine bliss as the chassid. He said the so all of a sudden he say the chassid came, and he would just be filled with this radiance and this joy because a sense of the divine presence just came over him, and then he would feel the urge to rejoice. And when you feel the urge to rejoice, what do you do? And so he would dance, and heaven help you if you were near him and didn't join him in his dancing, um, because he was quite enthusiastic that everyone needed to dance with him. And then he let go back to normal and said the chassid left. In other words, it's, it's an actual experience. There's the presence of Hashem, that's, that, that sense, that little glimmer of what it's like to perceive the truth of Hashem and Ganei, that would come over him. And he would experience a kind of tremendous joy. And you know, that, was, that was that. That's not what we're describing here. What are we describing here? As a person pondering and reflecting upon something until the point that it moves them to joy. Why did, why did the altar use that pasuk? I don't know. You can tell me. But there's just nothing to say pasuk. And I can come up with a reason, but like, instead of just me coming up with a okay. reason, right? By the way, in case you want to know, the follow-up with Ikusio Lepler is, um, he was a very simple person. He, he didn't... Um, so when the, the altar Rebbe's son took over the Mitla Rebbe, he made it a policy that anyone who came to Lubavitch would have to take the long way home and... Um, recite the Hasidic discourses, the memoir that he heard, as a way of spreading the teachings of Hasidus. So there was a young man who was very talented, and he came to Lepley, and he said over the discourses, the memoir, and everyone understood, the exception of Yikusi Lepler, because Sadiq he might be, but intellectually sophisticated he was not. 
and he could not follow at all what was going on. And he was very disturbed by this. So he asked if the young man would stay for a few more days and privately tutor him in the discourses, which was to no avail because he goes to the just wasn't getting it. Um, I once had a student like this who was not very intellectually sophisticated, put it mildly. Um, and I realized that in the end, the only way he understood the Mishnah was if I get drew out like a picture diagram of like what happened first, what happened second, what happened third. Um, there are people like that. They're just like, you know, they're not very smart. Then you have the opposite. Sometimes you have people that are way too smart and they can't focus on one thing at a time. Anyway, Yikusi Yulep was very disturbed, so he traveled to the Altar of Success of the Mithla Rebbe, and he asked him what, uh, or he said, like, he can't understand the Chassidus. And last time he went to a Rebbe with a problem, what happened? So, so he's expecting the same thing, and the Mithla Rebbe's response was, nothing stands in the face of will. No magic. <laughs> so he wrote a letter home that he's not leaving Lubavitch until he figures out how to understand this stuff. And um, he, he stayed there for a few months until he was able to concentrate and reflect upon one idea for hours at a time. And the most difficult work of Chassidus that was ever written was written by the Mittler Rebbe specifically for Yikusi Lepler because he used his willpower to cultivate an understanding of things and, put, and develop his mental abilities to the point that he became a, a profound intellectual genius. But only when it came to Chassidus and everything else, he was relatively simple and dull because he only applied himself in that one area. <laughs> so, anyway, what, interesting person. What did the Mithlera write? Imre Considered to be the most difficult work of Chassidus. Okay. So... Only stay in this state of like presence of God? No, the tzaddik fluctuates. The tzaddik fluctuates. Yesterday's Tanya, there's a daily Tanya thing. Yesterday's Tanya. You guys learned yesterday's Tanya, some of you? No. No? Nobody learned yesterday's Tanya? Yeah. So you saw about the tzaddik goes up and down and like. But yeah. it's not, but you were saying it's not um, something that he has to turn on and off. Right. So he doesn't turn it on and off. It just comes on and off. So, for instance, there's a very big difference. So, for instance, when a tzaddik is in a, on, on, on Shabbos, it's a, there's, a, there's a greater revelation than on a weekday. When they're, as they go through the ladder of davening, they experience it. Um, when, when they're in a state of mourning, it, it goes down. Like, there's, yeah, there's fluctuations. There's a whole complex reality to it. Right? Um, it's like, think about it, like you can, you can see beauty in the world, right? But it's not a constant, like static thing, right? You see more beauty, you see less beauty, you're more attentive, you're less, but it's there. It's something you directly experience in a visceral way. It's not, you reflect upon something to come to terms with it. I see. Okay, now on the other hand, the Bainini would be like, um, have, you ever, have you ever spoken to somebody who says weird things like they find mathematics beautiful? Have you ever heard people say things like that? Is that like you? I, I tend not to say that in class too much, but I do find <laughs> mathematics beautiful. But have you ever heard people say stuff like that? You're like thinking, like, what are you talking about? Okay. Um, there is a way, or, or, or um, have you, um, we have one of the Bachram in my notes, so he's a very talented musician. Um, and so he was speaking with one of the rabbis, and one of the rabbis came to him and says, like, I... He, He's very talented, but he's still studying music. So I asked him, like, what does he study? Because, like, he's very talented. He knows that. He says, well, like, he's, he's... One of the things he's learning with his teacher is teaching him how that you shouldn't um, reveal everything in the music in the beginning. You should reveal it as it goes on. And the, the, the rabbi's like, well, what does it mean to reveal something in the music? Well, the, well, the, 
the music says something. So you can say it all at once, or you can like say it over time. And so what does it mean to say things over time in music? There's like this whole reality of like how music theory works and how, uh, how like you create and resolve tension. And people who get it and understand it, and um, they see it as a very intriguing and, and, and invigorating and beautiful, and, and other people have no idea what you're talking about. Okay. There's a way in which when you reflect upon something, you can see something deeper and more profound in it that can move a person in, frankly, a very religious way. Um, so someone who studies the human body and really ponders and reflects upon the degree of intricacy and complexity and how everything is, is carefully balanced and, and can, can be filled with a sense of, of genuine awe and wonder and joy in the very fact that such a thing exists. Right? And you can do the same thing with mathematics, you can do the same thing with music, and Lahavdal, you can do the same thing with God. What if you direct your attentions on reflecting upon the greatness and infinite beauty of God? That can move a person. And then the person has joy, but that joy is directly proportional to the degree to which they appreciate the significance, um, the majesty, the wonder, the beauty of the greatness of God. Now, does that mean they're directly experiencing God? Or that's something that is the product of their mind? Right? Right. You see the difference? So... The person, the person is, is the person becomes um, overjoyed about just the, the very fact that that God that there's that there is such a reality that there is something that profound and that wondrous and that true and that whatever. Okay, you don't even have to mix the fact that like I have a connection with God. That's not even the point. Um, and then that moves a person. The person becomes enthralled by God. Person, you know, then you add the fact that, 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 that you know, you're connected to me, do a mitzvah, that brings in a deeper level of joy. But all of that positive emotion is the product of your own appreciation in your mind. It's not a product of something you're actually experiencing. So that kind of a path of service of God is a benini imitating a tzaddik. It's not an actual tzaddik because a tzaddik would be experiencing divine bliss. It's not the Baini, because the Baini is focusing on his connection to Hashem being his top priority. Um, and, you know, have you ever, like, spoken to somebody who's, like, a proficient and expert in something, and they just feel like everybody should, like, love this thing? Mm-hmm. And you're like, what's so great about it? It's like, but don't you see it's the most amazing thing ever? But that's what he's describing about how the non-Sadic imitates the Tzadik. It's like, everybody, don't you realize how amazing and wonderful and true and, and profound and significant God is? And just like, everybody should be enthralled by God. Why aren't you enthralled by God? But how is that joy? What is joy? If you think about the human spirit, when you're more expansive and you're less preoccupied with yourself, you're in a state called joy. When you're more constrained and you're also more focused on yourself, you're, you're the opposite of joy. Okay? In other words, like with someone, someone's, someone's getting married, yeah? What does it mean that they're in a state of joy? 
Like, how can we tell how joyous somebody is? They're getting married, fine. So they're supposed to be in a state of joy, but like, really, honestly, like, like not everybody's always in a state of joy when they're getting married, right? How can we tell, right? We have like a few different brides and grooms, and we wanna know which one of these brides and grooms is really joyous and which ones are not really joyous. You could, you could see it's an energy, it's like an openness. There's an openness in their posture, right? That's something we could see, what else? Sometimes they're smiling, but sometimes Smiling is very like personality cultural dependent, right? So I would say like smiling I wouldn't use There's as like an example. There's definitely a kind of a calm. Not like a passive calm, but I would say more of like a the kind of the, the, they don't lose they don't they don't get off kilter. Like if if the flowers aren't just right, how much is that gonna throw them off? Well the more joyous they are, the less likely that's gonna throw them off, right? Okay, here's an interesting one. If they see somebody who is suffering, right? On the way to their wedding, I don't know, right? How much is that going to touch them emotionally? More or less? If they're joyous? More, right? There's an openness, so there's a... The, so so the, 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 the energy of the living spirit in a person, when, it, when it's kind of flowing through us, unrestricted, unconstrained, that, that feels very positive. Yes, it feels very positive. Um, but, it, but it has other characteristics. It makes us more open. It makes us less self-conscious. It's like if you're dancing um, and you're thinking about how good you're dancing, you're clearly dancing is not that joyous because the more joyous you are when you're dancing, the less self-aware you are. Um, does that make sense? Okay. So... Like, I mean, just think about this on a very simple level, okay? This is, this is, this is, this is not, this is, this is, I don't mean to say this is holy, but if you have like a professor and they start talking, right? And they start like discussing some profound idea, right? And they just go on and on and on and they're just exuding energy, right? And they're completely oblivious to the fact that the air conditioner broke, right? And <laughs> like, there's something that they're seeing that the, prof- the profoundness of it, the, 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 the beauty in it, is opening up the, the tap of the spirit inside and it's coming out. I mean, that's not necessarily a holy thing per se, it's just a human thing. But for you to cultivate that kind of an attitude and that kind of a feeling towards Hashem, even though you're not actually experiencing the infinite presence of Hashem in any way, but your knowledge of it is so grounded and so real and so, and so impactful that it brings the person to joy. That would be the tzaddik, that would be the non-tzaddik imitating the joy of the tzaddik and doing the best they can to try to serve Hashem like a tzaddik serves Hashem. So he's trying to imitate the tzaddik in hating evil and in delighting evil. Right, and you'll notice by the way these two things aren't linked. Right, he, the hating evil is one way, and the and 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 the joy in godliness is a different way because they're not really because. If I experience the delight of being in Hashem's presence, then I actually find ungodliness distasteful. But if I'm not experiencing it, right, the, 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 the fact that a person takes profound joy in their understanding of, you know, I don't know, the astronomy, they find astronomy just an amazing, beautiful thing, doesn't mean they find things that are not astronomical disgusting. Right? It doesn't reorient them totally that their whole life is, they can only find any sort of, it's just not, it doesn't work that way. 
So I, the, 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 fact that I, the fact that I reflect on the greatness of Hashem, it may bring me to a real, a real sense of joy and enthusiasm and an openness of spirit, etc., etc., etc. It's not going to make me find mundane living in and of itself distasteful. So if the person wants to imitate the tzaddik, they're going to need to work on both things separately. They're going to need to work on finding evil repulsive by using the, the, the disgusting nature of physicality as a proxy, we discussed last week, and using knowledge of the greatness of Hashem as a substitute for the actual experience of Hashem's presence. But in, in the example, anything that opposes astronomy, they'll hate. Yeah, but 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 you don't even have to go that far because the 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 the, the Bainini already hates the things that get in his way of his relationship with Hashem. But that's not the same thing as the tzaddik, right? Anything ungodly doesn't interfere with my service of Hashem. It's not a problem. So so you're not gonna you're not you're not imitating anything like the tzaddik. The tzaddik fundamentally finds the fact that something is ungodly, um, unappealing. The Bainini doesn't, that's not how it's true. That's not true with the Bainini. The Bainini only finds something um, problematic that gets in their way. So to imitate a tzaddik, I would have to find something unappealing about reality itself. And since I can't, the ungodliness of reality, I can't find unappealing. I can find what's unappealing about reality is the physicality of it, which is, again, a proxy. It's an imitation. It's not the real thing. So what are we seeing here is that the trying to be a tzaddik is to try and mimic some of the results of the tzaddik's mode of living, even though the actual substance isn't there. Which then leads us to this point about the illusion. Is this person really delighting in the presence of God? And so will it feel somehow fake? Mm-hmm. Right, they're saying it, it, it will feel fake. And now it's not, it's not illegitimate, right? But you're delighting in something, not in it itself, you're delighting in your knowledge of it. It's not the same thing. It's not the same kind of experience. Now, and I think that you know, if, you, if, you, if you want to think of a, of a better example, which I think gets at the real difference, There are things that we have a natural affinity towards. And, the, and so all we need to do is kind of call attention to it. So like money, or, or, or better example might be, say, children. So if a person has a child, right? The knowledge that they have a child will bring them joy. But the knowledge or, or seeing the child is not creating the, the bond, creating the appreciation. The appreciation is kind of built in. People are naturally have a, a positive feelings towards their own possessions, they have positive feelings towards their children, towards their grandchildren. And so the seeing the child or have to sing the money or the knowledge of it is just calling attention to something because we're already present. Do people have a natural appreciation of mathematics? No. Do people have a natural appreciation of ancient literature? Do people have a natural appreciation of... Um, Philosophy. No. Philosophy, are, are not, not they say use of it, but people are naturally sitting and, and, and conceptualizing the categories of, the, of how human beings now don't have a natural. I mean, I think some people do. They're very uninteresting to me, but they do. <laughs> what? I wouldn't say it's natural. I would say there's a basis for it. 
but that has to be cultivated. You have to educate it. If you want to use it as, as it's not the same thing as appreciation, but it's like skill. There's a difference between using verbal communication and using other modalities such as written communication, which is that if you leave people to their own devices and you do not set up any edu edu educational structure whatsoever in a society, every person will develop the ability to speak, um, barring like some actual like medical problems. But if you don't make an active societal effort to teach people how to communicate in other modalities, they won't. It doesn't mean that the basis isn't there, but they have to develop that. It has to be taught. Okay? You don't have to teach people to appreciate having possessions and having descendants. Like that's kind of a built-in drive that people have. To appreciate like say, philosophy, mathematics, you have to educate them into it. Okay? Well, now you run into a problem. Is like, so if, if, if my... If, if my, my appreciation of the greatness of God is something I have to cultivate, I have to educate myself into, it doesn't, it, it, it feels there's a little bit of a kind of a fakeness to it, is that I'm, I'm not deriving joy in Hashem, I'm deriving a joy in what my mind has convinced me is true and real and profound, and it feels somewhat artificial. A little bit it feels like that. And the altar is saying, yes, it, 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 it does feel that. And in fact, he's, saying, he, he's actually saying something a little. If it doesn't feel like that, then you have a problem. Because now you are fantasizing. If it feels like the presence of God is washing over you, and not a gift from above, that happens, but that every time I think about it, all of a sudden, then, then you really are starting to engage in self-delusion. Because you're not experiencing prophecy. You're not experiencing Ganetan. Um, very, very simple, yeah. Let's, use, let's make a concrete example. We're, let's connect it to Judaism. So if I go to the Kaisal, okay, and I'm not talking about where a person goes to the Kaisal and completely unexpectedly something comes over them, that's a gift from Hashem. We're not talking about that. We're talking about their own doing, yeah? I come to the Kaisal, right? What does I as a human being experience when I go to the Kaisal? I experience the sun, I experience the stones, and I experience the people around me. That's it. That's all we experience. That's all you experience, that's all I experience. Now, can I stop and reflect upon what I know about this place and its significance? Mm -hmm. Okay. And if I reflect upon that in a way that's deep enough and profound enough, could that move me emotionally? Mm -hmm. Sure. Does that mean I'm experiencing anything different than before in terms of reality outside me? Mm -hmm. No. Right. So now... If a person were to go to the Kaiso and they were to like, you know, I go to the Kaiso and I think and I can just feel the presence of the Shekhinah coming over me and I feel so, like, there's some element and people are very good at this of self-delusion and fantasy. And that is not part of serving Hashem without describing it. But a person would say, I reflected upon this is the place where the Shekhin has never departed from. This is a place where Jewish people have prayed towards, right? And I felt something towards that knowledge that I have that's genuine, but there is an element that you feel like it's artificial because you're, it's, it's, you're feeling something to the knowledge you have rather than to the reality itself because you're not experiencing the reality directly. That's very different, again, than feeling annoyed that it's too hot or too crowded, which are feelings that are directed to your actual experience of things. Right? Or conversely, maybe the joy you feel and feeling that you're with all these people, that you feel that kind of energy. That's also a thing you could be feeling. Right? So the tzaddik, right? The tzaddik feels that radiance of Hashem, 
the non-tzaddik imitating the tzaddik is trying to have knowledge of what makes Hashem so great and profound and beautiful, pick whichever adjective you want, that brings them to a state of joy. And so it does feel like they're kind of, there's a certain element of, 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 of what he calls in Hebrew, dimyon or, or, or illusion, because you're feeling something not towards reality itself, but towards your own mental process, your own reflection, your own knowledge of the thing. And that's very different. And, you know, that's not illegitimate um, on the one hand, but on the other hand, it isn't more than it is, which means you're not actually experiencing the divine presence. You're experiencing how convinced you are that the divine presence is a wonderful thing. Okay? And that would be imitating a tzaddik. Delusion comes from not doing this thought process, just coming there and being, you know, right. taken away by it. Right. Now, I want to be clear. If something comes completely unexpected, you're not, you're not trying, you didn't come there wanting it, you come there expecting it, it happens to you. Hashem can grant anybody experiences all the time to arouse people to chew all sorts of things. We're talking about here what's called in Hebrew the Seder of the the idea that there's an order for how one should approach things using their own faculties, their own abilities. The idea that part of me living my life is to delight in Hashem's presence is only legitimate if I am capable of actually experiencing the bliss of the radiance of the Shekhinah, which means I'm experiencing a little bit of Gan Eden here in this world, which means that a person is worthy of receiving that divine gift. And if that's not really the case about you, then you shouldn't delude yourself into thinking that it's the case about you. But nonetheless, you still have a mind capable of appreciating the significance of the greatness of Hashem, and you can delight and rejoice in that knowledge. And that would be the non-Sadiq imitating the Tzadik. Um, people often get confused about this, which is that they do experience some kind of spiritual awakening that they did not expect. And then they spend the rest of their life trying to re- re- reclaim and recreate that experience failing to realize that it's not actually something of their doing to begin with, so they can't like reproduce it. The tzaddik, as much as we say the tzaddik is a gift, the tzaddik is worthy of that gift and so can spend his life being worthy of that gift being perpetuated and that gift being enhanced. But if it wasn't really a gift, it was, for instance, very often it's a case of Hashem having tremendous compassion on us that without that moment of, a, of being spiritually reawakened, we got lost or something. Like you can't do anything to like bring that back again. Which is why you know the person goes to the Kaisa once. And using this as an example it doesn't always work with everybody, and they have a, it's very moving. And like I should come back here all the time. And if they're going to be very honest, like at some point it starts to become a bit of a ritual, and they have to like somehow like really convince themselves they're feeling something because it's not that they're not, you know. They're, um, and that can be. I'm using Kaisa as an example. You can pick whatever you want, and everyone can see that happen in their life. Okay. All right, now, so we spoke about the, what happens with the, with the evil is that if you continue to reflect, and you continue to reflect, and you continue to reflect, you eventually start to develop a, a, a real natural abhorrence to physicality, again, which should be in the, the proper measure. Is the same thing true with rejoicing in God? Like, if you keep contemplating the greatness of Hashem, do you eventually become, like, genuinely pleased about the existence of God and his greatness. There's, the, there's this idea that, that habit really becomes nature. Is that true 
on the positive side the way it's true on the negative side. So if we look in the text, we'll see that the Altarba doesn't say that. So if you look, um, third line from the top on 64 left-hand column, it says, furthermore, habititude reigns supreme in any sphere and becomes second nature. Therefore, if he accustoms himself to despise evil, it will by some extent become despicable in truth. Similarly, when he accustoms himself to gladness, heart, and God through reflection's greatness, for self-impulsion exists heavily inspiration. He says here, when it, comes to the, when it comes to the joy, it doesn't say that if you keep doing it, it just becomes true to a certain extent. What does he say? If you accustom yourself to gladdening your, in your heart and God, what happens? That induces, what does he call this in English? A heavenly inspiration. What does that mean? Can you train yourself that you develop a nature to take joy even in, in, in God? Does he say you can or you can't? What? With evil, he says you can. You train yourself, you think about how physicality is disgusting, and eventually you develop a negative association with physicality that creates that detachment, that creates that abhorrence. Does he say the same thing? Oh, no. No. He says the best you can do is you keep thinking you have this joy, and that might do what? Induce a heavenly inspiration. Induce a heavenly inspiration. So this is very interesting. The author is saying something like this. In order for me to genuinely dislike the physical world, I can, I can bring that about. Now, I won't dislike it because it's ungodly. I can dislike it because it's just, you know, disgusting. But to bring about a state that I genuinely delight in God is something I can't do. Even if I reflect upon this over and over and over and over and over again. Might it might induce something, which we're going to read later. But, but I want to just like, why is there this asymmetry? Like, why is it that I can come to really abhor the physical reality, but I can't really come to delight in God? He's going to hate the physical reality just like the tzaddik hates it? No. Just in a different way. In a different way. But here he's saying, even in this way, if I'm going to make it a habit to reflect upon the greatness of God, the point that that brings me joy... That he doesn't say that that ends up becoming a certain kind of truth about the person out of ha- right? a person a person who makes it a habit to reflect upon how eating and other physical things are actually really disgusting upon reflection. If you do that repeatedly over time, what will happen to you? You will you will create a genuine disdain for those things. If I reflect every single day on the greatness of Hashem, the point that, that brings me some kind of a joy, will that in and of itself eventually make me the kind of person? who genuinely finds the greatness of God emotionally inspiring and a, and a positive force in my life. Does he say that it will do that or it won't do that? Yeah. Which one? Second. It won't. He says it might elicit some heavenly inspiration, which we'll talk about later. Why can't I train myself to really delight in God? He's saying I can reflect upon it and in the moment of reflection when it's really true and it's really powerful, it can move me to a point of joy. But if I do that every single day, it will never become, a, a, it'll never become part of my character. It never becomes part of who I am in the way that the abhorrence for evil can become part of who we are. 
experience? Right. In other words, knowledge that, in other words, knowledge that's not grounded in experience can't really become fully integrated into the person. Let me explain to you what I mean. Something that we all experience is eating. We can then change the way we frame eating in our mind toward positive light, towards a negative light, whatever the case might be, right? And as we, we, uh, as we do that, it changes the way we relate to that thing in our life. That makes sense? Okay. Another thing we all experience, we all experience um, society. And we can, again, change how we reflect upon society so that we start to see society in a more positive light or more negative light. But again, that changes how we relate to the thing in our actual experience. Okay? <coughs> Does the non-Sadiq experience the presence of Hashem? So what are they... What, what, so by changing their mind, what are, by, by reflecting and pondering... Are they changing the way they experience something in their reality? No. So is there anything to become integrated into who they are as a person as they live their life? No. They're just able to create these moments where their mind is so aware of this profound knowledge, this profound perception, that it moves them in very deep ways. It changes their, their emotions. It changes their mood. But it's not linked to anything in their actual experience of living. Their actual experience of living is food and society and clothing and money and, and music, and that's what their experience of living is. Right? I, can make, I, can, I can take something which was used to be artificial and make it an actual genuine part of who I am, assuming that it's reshaping part of my actual experience of living. But Hashem is not part of our experience of living. That's... That's kind of driving home the difference between you and a tzaddik. Right? Nobody walks, no, nobody, like, like, if you're not being cute, I mean, just in, in like, pure, just mundane, nobody walks, you know, nobody bumps into someone in the street and says, oh, how are you doing? Yeah, I just bumped into God and we just had a great conversation. Like, that, you don't, right? You could, you could bump into your teacher, you could bump into someone else, right? There's a level of, ab of abstraction that we need to get past in dealing with God. And so even though we have these minds, and especially because we have a godly soul which is capable of understanding God in a, in a much more profound and genuine way, that can move a person to a state of, 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 of joy and a state of, of, of reverence and, and, being, and feeling this exaltation and that moves them and affects them emotionally, it's all like there's somehow a bit of, an, of, of, an, of, of, of something artificial about the whole thing because you're conceptualizing something you've never experienced. You're pondering something that's beyond the horizon for you. So like there's nothing for you to integrate back into your life. There's no actual thing in your existence which you're reframing, right? Whereas eating and, 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 and money and friends and society and, and all those things, those are things that you're actually part of your reality. You can, through repeated uses of your mind change how you experience those things, thus changing who you are in regards to those things. I mean, it's sad because we're the only, again, the only thing that's real is Hashem. Like, yes. 
this is sad. From, from, from religious, it's very sad. Hence, the altar needs to go on and like comfort the non sadic Okay. Yes? But we're not there yet. I mean, let me put it this way, yeah? Okay. Is it easy to dive in? No. Why not? Because you're trying to conceptualize talking to something that you aren't experiencing. Right. At what point does it get easy to dive in? Never. Now, there are situations like a person's in a state of, 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 of there's some like serious issue and they, they, they need help. And so that kind of elicits like a natural thing that every, every, every Jew and to a certain extent every creation calls out to their creator. Fine. Right? But the idea that I am of my own initiative going to like meet up with God and, and, and like chat. chat and pour out my heart to him is like that's a thing that's hard to do. And the reason why it's hard to do is like from our level of experience he's not around. <laughs> exactly. And so when you're contemplating the greatness of God, there's this sense in which the greatness of this thing that my mind is trying to convince me is real, but on some very, very basic levels, like, where is he? And so there's nothing for me to, like, take back and change who I am in terms of my experience of life. Like, I don't, like, the person, the, 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 the person can make an active effort to think about God and to connect things back to God. But it doesn't, they don't develop that kind of habit of mind the way you can develop it with, say, like, finding, eating, disgusting. Yes? Um, isn't it a little strange to talk about knowledge of God? Because people usually talk about faith. And so, fine, you can know God because you learn about God. But even, like, if you're learning from texts or from people, you still have to have faith that those things are valid, you know? Um, so I was hoping to avoid this. <laughs> but what? <laughs> no, I'll answer it very, very simply. No, you, you, if, so we can get into a semantics game, but I want to avoid the semantics game. You cannot have joy from faith. Um, what you can, because because of the the. the The, to, have, to have joy, something has to actually seem real to you. And the thing, the thing about faith is, there's a very different kind of mental experience where you have a sense that something is real. It doesn't mean that it's real to you. Those are not the same thing. It, it's... It reminds us of something the Ramam says in the Guide for the Perplexed that people often aren't like, don't reflect on their own inner cognitive faculties. So they don't really understand what's going on in themselves. When I have, when I have a moon or faith in something, something inside me tells me that something else is real. That's not the same thing as it being real to me. The difference between the two is like this, that when, is that something that's real to me changes me. So the altar gives the following example is that a person can pray to God to be successful in their, a sinful endeavor. Now, why are they praying to God? Why are they asking for help? Because they believe. Otherwise, they wouldn't be asking for help. So, but if they really believe, why are they sinning? 
And the answer is because just because something inside them tells them that God is real is not the same thing as God being real to them. It doesn't have an impact on them. It doesn't change them. It doesn't alter them. And the idea here of that joy is it actually changes the person. And so what we're saying is like you can like kind of create this kind of like artificial thing where in your mind you're thinking and you know it and it's, and it's very real to you as you're thinking about it that moves you and changes you and affects your mood. But the minute you stop that process and go back to your life, there's nothing left because it's not grounded in anything that you actually experience for yourself. Now, this gets into another important feature of our mind is our mind is able to know things that it doesn't experience um, and, to, and, and, and to come to understand them and appreciate them, not just because it's relying on someone else's authority. I believe, like, I believe the Alter ever believe the Torah says so. The person didn't come to know it for themselves, that there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a power that the mind has to be convinced on its own terms of things. How that works is not the subject for right now. But that's what a person would really need to do in order to have this kind of a joy. They would really need to say, not just, oh, I believe that the Altarba says that like, you know, God is great. They would have to like, come to some sort of sense that their mind is really convinced on its own terms that God is great. But the thing is, because God is detached from their actual experience of reality, they're kind of creating this artificial mental space. And in that artificial mental space, they're really convinced that God is great and that God's greatness is real. And that impacts them in that kind of little bubble that they've created in their mind. And then if they walk out of that bubble and go back to regular life, there's nothing there. It, it, it has that kind of artificialness to it. Um, faith is something very different because faith is that there's, there's another faculty in, in the, inside a person, Dr. develops this in chapter 18, chapter 19, that gives them a sense of things being real even though they don't have any experience of those things, even though they don't, um, um, even if they don't have any, any direct contact with those things. And that actually allows them to simultaneously be absolutely convinced in the truth of something at the same time be totally indifferent to it at the same time that faith has that kind of interesting characteristic. Because you have a sense that it is real, not a sense that it's real to you. Um, again, the example a person can pray to be successful in a sinful endeavor. Um, you know, or you have this, all, you have this the same thing where, where a person, where a person is, believes that something is morally wrong and yet they're perfectly emotionally comfortable doing, they don't even necessarily feel guilty about doing it. Um, it's not, you, you can just chalk that up to hypocrisy or you can actually realize that there's actually two different faculties. There's, there's the ability of the mind to be led around by the truth, that's like faith, and there's the ability of the mind to come to know something for itself, and that's called knowledge. And what he's speaking about here is this, that second kind of faculty. Does that make any sense or no? So the tech, so there's this famous Greek paradox about knowledge, which is how does, how does teaching work? Um, because it, it's easier to demonstrate with, with mathematical language. How do you teach math? Math is like this, the lowest level of knowledge, so it's easy to demonstrate. How do you teach math? So I, many years ago, had a bachar in the yeshiva who never got a secular education. Um, and I don't remember what prompted this, but there was something he was learning and it was necessary to understand like some, I don't remember what is necessary to understand, but, but it seemed to me that the best way to do this was to teach him some math. 
either because he needed to know the math itself for something in Torah, or he needed a demonstration of something about the cognitive process. I don't remember which one it was. So I started like teaching him basic geometry because geometry is actually easier to teach than, than, than other forms of math. For some reason, we enjoy teaching geometry. Okay, so I asked him a very simple question, right? Um, and again, there's no secular education, right? And I asked him, okay, so if I have, if I have, a, uh, if I have a box and that box, you know, is a certain volume, yeah? If the box... Right? It's a cube. Yeah, like a, like a, I make that box twice as tall. But it stays a cube, right? So just like blow it up. Yeah. So what happens to its volume? So, I mean, this is simple. This is simple math. If you, a, cube, a cube that's one by one by one has a volume of one. And a cube that's two by two by two has a volume of... Four, four, six, eight. It's not squared. It's cubed. Eight cubed. It's eight. Okay. Fine. So now you sat down that, but it, so, so he's like, well, why is that? I mean, it, so then what I start doing is I start like demonstrating. I just start demonstrating. I start demonstrating. I start showing him. And at some point he knows. And so this interesting question is how can just by pointing out information, which is not the actual conceptual understanding, all of a sudden he has a conceptual understanding. Like I'm not actually giving him the conceptual understanding. There's this interesting thing in what, what the ancient Greeks spoke about, and this was really developed in, in all sorts of other cognitive thoughts, and you find that Hasidus makes reference to this understanding of knowledge, is that knowledge is developing a potential that already exists. So what's really happening when someone develops knowledge is that someone else is creating guides and pointers for you to build something that was already there in you in potential. So in other words, in some, and if you think about this actually now, when you don't understand something, like, not you're misinformed. I'm not talking about information. You don't, you're mis, you, you have all the information and it does not make sense. How do you make sense of it? What do you do to make sense of something? You have all the information you need. You give up? No. That's how, unfortunately, that's how people do and that's why they don't actually develop any knowledge of things. You think about it again and again and again. Now, if you were to actually stop and observe what you're doing, what you'll find is there's like a part of you who doesn't know is kind of like asking a part of you which believes to know and hopefully that part of you like that you believe knows will somehow provide the answer. It's as if like there's some deeper level of yourself which already knows. This is what ancient philosophers called our reason. Our reason is the thing that provides the answer, the explanation. So if it's providing it, it must have somehow have a sense of it to begin with. That's a very different thing. So when I study a text, and this is the altar says other places says if I just study a text and I'm reading and I'm understanding it, um, that's not going to produce what this is. I would have to be able to come to a place where even it could be that the text guided me to this knowledge, but now that I have this knowledge, the knowledge to my mind stands on its own, independent of the text. It's that kind of knowledge that really moves the person. The problem here is that knowledge, as much as that knowledge is real knowledge, is just disconnected from anything they experience in life, and so it has a kind of artificialness to it, and therefore it can't really be integrated. You think it, it, it has an artificialness because in order to really know something and understand something, you need to be able to apply it on your own, and if there isn't any application in the world, then you can't apply it? No, 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 no. I'm saying that on the realm of knowledge, it's not artificial at all. But the knowledge compared to the person as a whole is artificial. In other words, 
it's when I enter that headspace of trying to like really understand it and appreciate and reflect upon it, it's truth doesn't come because I believe what I read in the text. It's truth is because my mind has come to know that this, this is true and this is real and this makes sense on its own terms. Even though the text might have guided me to that place. The pro- what makes it artificial is that headspace is completely detached from my rest of my experience of life. It's knowledge of something which I can't bump into in life. And so there's nothing for me to kind of integrate back in. I can act in accordance with that knowledge. It can affect my mood, but I can't, it, doesn't, it doesn't go back and like change like anything because it's not knowledge of anything that I experience. Can I have an example? I think I've just had so the, 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 having knowledge of something that you don't have any context for because how can you really know something if you don't have so the, 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 there's a there's an old so there's an old debate in in, in in the philosophy of knowledge which is how much is knowledge based on the mind and how much is knowledge based on external reality this is called rationalism versus empiricism okay the there, I, I don't want to like start teaching you all the, all the things about this, but, but, but what it's saying is that at least when it comes to a non-tzadik, their knowledge of Hashem has a, has a kind of deficiency to it, which is that there's no empirical corollary to it. Right. Um, there, in, other words, what, in other words, it's similar to knowledge of any abstraction. Where, if I were to ask you, like, um, um, let's let's use something that's not used mathematics. Um, let's say, um, And let's use the idea of a, this is a good one. The cultural history of a society. That's an idea. When was the last time you bumped into the cultural history of a society? In the present culture, right? Like you see echoes of it in the present culture and that's what makes it real. You see echoes of it. Yeah. Yeah. How do you see echoes of it? Experience present society. What? You experience present society. I, I, everyone knows you experience present society, yeah? Right. First off... And you have a knowledge of what it was in the past, and so you see how those things connect. Oh, so what's happening, what's, what, what, what's happening is you have a knowledge, you have an experience, then you're drawing a link between them, right? Okay. So what you're saying is that there's that, that knowledge is, is something separate from your experience that you need to link up, right? Sure. Now that link can be easier or harder to achieve, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, like, a person walk down the street and they just see things all the way they are, right? Somebody who maybe has knowledge of, of history and culture from, you know, sees a certain kind of relevance in certain things that most people are just oblivious to, right? Okay. But that's because they possess a knowledge that then they're imbuing significance into those things, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So I'm going to give you now a religious example, Okay. A person who grows up religious or has been religious for a efficient period of time, 
they have a knowledge of Shabbos. Not just a belief of Shabbos, a knowledge of Shabbos. There are certain things about, that make sense to them about what Shabbos is and what Shabbos isn't. Okay? And then that affects how they relate to certain activities and certain behaviors and certain things, that, or with kosher food. Okay? The thing is, that kind of knowledge is, is very, it's, it, 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 it's not the same thing as experiencing it in the world. It's not the same thing as seeing that reflected out in the world. Now the problem is, as something becomes more and more and more abstract, more and more unlike what I actually experience, that kind of knowledge becomes harder and harder to actually hold on to as part of my actual living because there's nothing that manifests in my everyday life. You know, knowledge of kosher is manifest in the fact that I have to eat. Knowledge of Shabbos is manifest in the fact that I have to go around and navigate the world. Knowledge of culture history is manifest in the fact that like, you are in a society which has all sorts of norms and architecture and things like that, which have a history to them, right? How is knowledge of the greatness of God manifest? So the simple answer one person will say is, 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 in, is in the creation of God. But the more you understand about the creation of God and God, you start to realize that the creation of God is insignificant to God. It's unlike God. And so it's not really, what? Yeah, so the creation is not really a, doesn't reflect the greatness of the creator and then you run into a problem that there's nothing absent experiencing contact with the creator. Like what is the empirical side of that knowledge? All you have is that rational side of that knowledge and therefore it starts to feel very ivory tower like it serves to be very detached from reality. And so you can enter a headspace where it's very moving and very impactful, which is what we described but you have to enter that headspace. And when you leave that headspace, you can't take anything really with you. The tzaddik doesn't have that problem. Because for the tzaddik, the experience of Hashem's presence has a visceralness to it. And so there is no way I can reframe my understanding of Hashem so that my joy in His greatness can just become a kind of habitual part of my life. Now, I just want to point out, in contrast, there are things about God you can do this with. Later on in Tanya, the altar says, when it comes to fear of God, you can do this. Because fear of God doesn't have to do with his greatness. Fear of God has to do with the fact that, more than the fact that he's in charge. In charge is like less, they don't know. Does it come also from his greatness? No, I mean, you could add his greatness. What makes, you, what makes a person afraid of God? He's around watching you. Always. Yes. And that's something that actually comes back down to the nature of your reality, right? If your reality's existence depends on God's involvement, then what does that mean? He's always involved. He's always involved, right? And so your understanding of his involvement, if your understanding of his involvement is proper, then you can ground that. I walk down the street and I see the clouds and I see the buildings and I see the trees and I see the ground in front of me. If all of those things are evidence of God's ongoing involvement, they're therefore evidence of God's ongoing presence. And if I therefore have a proper understanding of what that presence is, I don't feel like I'm alone. I feel like I'm being observed and that can bring about. And so Alter there says that you can train yourself to have that awareness. Here he doesn't say you can train yourself to have this awareness because it's, it's the joy in the greatness of his being, not the fear that comes in the fact that you're not alone. <laughs> so it's very, it's not like God, it depends what about God. Some things about God can be, um, you know, a gratitude. You can also train yourself to have gratitude towards God, right? If you train yourself that everything that you appreciate in life is really coming from God, 
because you're, you're, again, you're grounding it back down to something you can experience, right? The reason why you cannot train yourself to really rejoice in God's greatness is because, if, unless you're a tzaddik, you're not actually experiencing, and therefore there's nothing for you to like, ground it back into your experience with. There are plenty of things about God that you can make habitual and, and really become part of who you are. Fear of God, gratitude towards God, etc. The joy in his greatness, though, is not that. And it's the joy in his greatness, it's the joy in his being that the tzaddik has that the non-tzaddik lacks. And that's why there's a difference, there's this asymmetry between being repulsed by evil because I experience the world and taking joy in God, which I don't experience. I can inculcate something that's a reframing of an experience in my life. I can't inculcate something that is only in my rational mind, has no empirical thing to ground it. Don't we have like a sense that Hashem is around and real and yes, so. around and real and present, which makes it easier to have fear of Hashem. You gotta tap into it. Uh, we don't have an innate sense of His greatness. The Alter does nowhere says we have an innate sense of. It. We have an innate sense of our need to be connected to Him. We have an innate sense that He's real. We have an innate sense that He's present. But, but not an innate sense of his presence, an innate sense of the greatness and majesty and beauty of his being. We don't know an innate sense of that at all. For that matter, even a soul in Gan Eden, before it comes down to this world, doesn't have a sense of that, really. You're going to get that as this after the mitzvahs, whatever. It's like it says, it's this kind of a reward. That kind of intimate encounter with Hashem. Right, I guess that's, this is the only thing that would, we can lack as Jews that would... Right. In other words, if you're like, he only says this about certain types of experiences. Love. Not even. There's other kinds of love too. This kind of this kind. The the love of wanting to be with him, we can have. The um the the gratitude the um that we can we can have gratitude we can have um, for instance, there's a kind of love Alter speaks later on about the love that you have knowing that you are loved. And that we can know in our experience because the actual mitzvahs we observe are, is, is the embodiment of Hashem's love of us. Why do we have mitzvahs when He wants to be close to us? Okay, so I have something tangible in my life on an ongoing daily basis, which is something I can reframe to appreciate how much Hashem loves me. And therefore, like, not, like there are things which you can really integrate into your being, but a joy in the greatness of God per se, that His greatness is just this beautiful thing which just makes you feel the sense of joy and, and overflowing um, energy and positivity and, and isn't that just a human limitation like if we actually understood the greatness of God we just explode it, no no it's not about it's not, it's not about the lack here is not understanding the lack here is what, what, what she pointed out that it's, it's a lack of having been grounded in our experience my rational mind can come to know it on its own terms not just trusting the text but if you were to actually experience that it wouldn't that you'd be a tzaddik mm. that's what a tzaddik experiences and that's probably why the, like, the thing that you're supposed to think about to make you actually hate evil is something that is grounded in our experience. Right, right. right. Like there's a, there's a lot of... I'm going with time, but, but I think it's important to realize like, the way he writes and describes the different things, it, it's very important because there are different experiences psychologically. You can, you can bring yourself to a genuine sense of... of of gratitude to Hashem and, 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 and respect for Hashem in a sense that you're not alone and all these types of things. But not, that's not what we're describing here. We're describing something very, very different. The person who like wakes up in the morning and they're genuinely filled with a, 
with an overwhelming sense of joy and optimism that nothing can face them because they know that Hashem is real and Hashem is amazing. Like, you can bring yourself to that space in your mind through like real reflection to your mind is convinced that that's all true, but you can't stay in that space. A tzaddik could stay in that space because he's experiencing it in his navigating of life. We have to have, create a bubble of knowledge. And when we leave that to like go encounter the world, it doesn't stay with us. Um, through thinking about the greatness of Hashem, we can't feel joy or we can't feel we can, love? We can feel joy. We can feel love. The question here is, can it be something that stays and integrates into you? So the joy that comes from Hashem's greatness cannot be something that's going to stay with you. It'll be there when you produce it. It's like the light, if you turn off the lights, the light doesn't stay. So the joy and the love will come sometimes, but not always. But a tzaddik who experienced it will always feel joy and love. As long as he's having that, that experience of closeness to Hashem, as long as he's having that zivashtena. But no, no tzaddik, tzaddik can live in that constantly? Like, I mean, there's, like we learned yesterday's time, yeah, there's times where it leaves and comes back, but... But if they already experienced it at some point, shouldn't that be joyous and, and like, them feel love because of yeah. the fact that they experience that? So even if they're not experiencing it right now... That's what it says, that even when they lose it, they have remember, they remember having experienced it. That, that's a whole other element to being a That even if they're not experiencing it at the moment, you can't compare knowledge of something you never experienced to knowledge of something you experienced in the past. But if someone experienced something at some point in their lives, whatever they like think about it, even if they're not experiencing it anymore, wouldn't that make them feel joy and love? It could. Depends how they think about it. Right? If you think about the fact that you used to, you used to be a certain way and you're no longer that way, that might actually make you feel sad. There's limits to what we can do with our mind. And that's what Alpha's getting at here. Like you can reframe your experiences. You can't create an experience you don't have. That's delusion. That's delusion. Right. 